35 seconds to That's how long time you're going. <laughs> and we have people coming out of nowhere. It's great. I love it. Well, uh, welcome to Jacob's Well again. If I have not met you, my name is Dan Jackson. I'm the planning staff here at Jacob's Well. We're so glad to have you with us this morning. This is our second week at Green Bay Community Church, which is super exciting. We love this facility. One of the downsides to this facility is I'm not sure we can do better than this if we ever outgrow this, but we really enjoy being here. Our community has just been an awesome uh, partner in the gospel with us, and we've really enjoyed their friendship. Uh, I met with Pastor Troy this week, again, just so encouraging, praying for me, and uh, we even have some ideas that we're kicking around that would be pretty cool, so we're very thankful for them. When we moved in here last week, we started a new series called Freedom From Religion. We're going through the book of Galatians. And the reason why we did this is because we believe at Jacob's Well that religion is one of the things that keeps people furthest away from Jesus. Uh, this is especially predominant in America and even more so in Green Bay, I think. You, uh, you, you get baptized, you say the prayer, you do the sacraments, uh, you do the things you're supposed to do, you don't do the things you aren't supposed to do, you give money, you help old ladies across the street, you brush your teeth, you floss, and so God loves you. But the problem with that is that you don't ever really need Jesus, if that's your view of religion. It's just a treadmill religion of always trying to earn God's favor. Last week we mentioned it being the Santa Claus religion, right? If I'm good enough, then God will be good to me. But if I'm not good enough, well then I guess I'll be disappointed. The funny thing is that all of us probably believe that we're good enough. And so we're working through freedom from religion, freedom from those things. When I was in college, I, uh, I had just become a Christian, and I knew that I, uh, I was supposed to be nice to people that, um, that weren't necessarily like me. And so there was this guy in my Spanish class named Jason. And I was the fraternity guy, I was a jock, uh, Jason was like the rocker, kind of like our Jason. He, he was the rocker, uh, probably smoked two packs a day, looked like he should have been in a death metal band. You know, the black t-shirts with holes in it and 80s band and all that jazz. And so Jason and I started to develop this friendship in Spanish class and I asked Jason where he lived and he lived not too far from me. I actually lived about five miles off campus and I asked him, how do you get home? back and forth every day, and he said, well, I actually, I actually walk, which is a long distance. And so I said, well, hey, let me give you, let me give you a ride. And so I, Jason and I started commuting together, we developed this friendship, and one day I remember we come to campus and we park, and we're walking to our Spanish class, and I don't know how this came up, because it was before September 11th, and he said, you know, if the draft ever happens, if for some reason America goes to war and we get drafted, he goes, I know how I'm going to get out of it. And I'm like, all right, Jason, how are you going to get out of it? He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go online and get ordained. Evidently, you can go online and fill out some paperwork. They don't ask you anything, but then you're ordained. Um, if you're curious, that's not how I got ordained, and, uh, which is a good thing. But he said, I'll go online, I'll get ordained, and I'll start Jason's church. And at Jason's church, we'll sit in the front yard, we'll tap up a keg, we'll smoke some weed, and that will be Jason's church, and then I won't have to go off to war. Now, for Jason, this was kind of his gospel. This was his good news. This is how he found relief from the effects of the fall found relief even from war, was that what I do to escape, what I do to be 
is I go to drugs and alcohol. There is a lot of man-made gospels in this world. All of us live according to some gospel. Some gospel that says, this is what gives me freedom, this is what gives me life, this is what gives me hope, this is what gives me enjoyment when life is difficult, when life is hard, when we're suffering through the consequences of sin. And so for some of us, that might be a political party that's our hope. For some of us, it might be a TV show or even a TV. Um, it could be a whole host of things. But there's a lot of man-made gospels. If you would open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, uh, it's on page 972 if you have the Red Bible. As you turn there, just to catch up on speed, last week we talked about how Jesus Christ had died, he had risen again, he had ascended into heaven, and as Paul was persecuting the church, uh, Jesus appeared to him and saved Paul. And his name was Saul, it became Paul when he became a Christian. But he saved Saul, and Saul became a preacher of Jesus. And as he became a preacher of Jesus, uh, he started to travel, and he started to do missionary journeys. And one of the missionary journeys that he did, one of his first missionary journeys, if we have the map, one of his first missionary journeys was to the region of Galatia. And so Paul, uh, Paul was down here, uh, and he came up this way, and he came up to Antioch, Sida, and then Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, and he planted those churches there, and he planted them with the gospel, the gospel that God had communicated to him. And then he went on from Derby, and he came back to Antioch. And after being in Antioch for a year, he heard that some false teachers had come into the church. Some false teachers had come in and started proclaiming a gospel where, yes, you do have to love Jesus, yes, you do have to receive Jesus by grace through faith. But you also have to be circumcised. You also have to do these sacraments. You have to do these things that the Old Testament commanded us to do, but that Christ canceled on the cross, the ceremonial law. And so they started adding to the gospel, and Paul actually says they had perverted or reversed the gospel. They had given you what's the opposite of the gospel by adding to Jesus. And so this week, what we're going to look at... Um, well, last week, Paul's main focus was to prove the validity of the gospel by proving that his apostleship was from God. You remember the book starts by saying, Paul, an apostle, not by man, but by God. This week, he wants to prove that not his apostleship is from God, but that the gospel itself is from God. And this makes a big difference. If the gospel is just something that Paul made up while he was out in the desert hallucinating, or whether this came from God makes a tremendous difference because we want to know what God's good news is for us. For those who are uh, trapped in sin, who have to suffer the consequences of sin, what rescue plan does God offer to us? And so we're going to look and see if this is God's rescue plan, God's gospel. So let's read in Galatians 1. We're going to read verses 11 through 24. Galatians 1, 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so you see right away, you see this gospel is not from me. It's from God. And so you need to believe it. 
And he goes on to prove it by talking about his testimony of who he was before he was a Christian, of how he was converted and became a Christian, and then his life after being a Christian. And that's what we're going to look at today, his, his testimony. It goes on, verse 13. For you have heard of my former life of Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who's also Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the brother of Jesus, the Lord's brother, excuse me. Verse 20, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for how you take angry, messy, religious people, and by your gospel, you transform them. You set them free by your grace, by your mercy, by the death of Christ on the cross. Lord, we are sinners, God. We confess to you that, that we ourselves need a miracle. We ourselves need Christ's atonement on our behalf, Lord God. Lord, we pray that as we would read today Paul's argument, as we read the scriptures, Lord, that we would once again be affirmed that there is only one true gospel, and it's not from man. It's from you. The true gospel is something only you could think of, Lord. We praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen. So Paul makes these really audacious claims. He's saying, the gospel that I preach to you is the yardstick by which every other gospel should be judged. My gospel is right. Everyone else's is wrong. <laughs> it's an arrogant claim, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's arrogant if it's not true. It's, if it's true, it's not arrogant. It's just true. But it's an arrogant claim saying, my gospel is true. Everyone else's is wrong. And you can measure theirs according to mine. If it doesn't measure up, he says back in verse 9, let those teachers be accursed if it doesn't measure up to the gospel that I'm preaching. And so what we want to look at and see is, is this gospel that Paul so arrogantly, audaciously claims to be the only true gospel is it God's gospel? And the way we're going to look at that is by looking through his life, looking through his testimony as he does. And we're going to see that by Saul's religion before conversion, it, it, it validates the true gospel. By Paul's remoteness after conversion, and by Saul's revelation at conversion. Before I start, I'm going to have to apologize. Um, Paul was named Saul when he was a Jew. When he became a Christian, his name was changed to Paul. 
And so I'm going to try to use the right name for the right time in his life, but I will probably mess it up. And so if you just hear it end in all, A-U-L, it's the same guy, all right? So, uh, so let's first look and see Saul's religion before conversion. If you have a bulletin, there's actually an outline in there of what we're going to go through. If you're a note taker, uh, you can make use of this. I don't actually know how far I'm going to get through this sermon today. I'm not going to get through the whole thing. Uh, one of the cool things that, that God does is when I first read this passage, I'm like, Lord, there's not a whole lot there. What am I going to preach on? You know, It's not a passage I would have picked. And then as I studied it, I was like, man, this is enough for two sermons. So, so this will probably be a two-sermon uh, series as we look at this. But first, let's look at Saul's religion before conversion. Saul was a superstar. He was a religious superstar. He was the Billy Graham of the Jews. Anyone here not heard of Billy Graham? It's okay, raise your hand. All right, one person, that's fine. Everyone had heard of Paul. Saul, excuse me. See, I'm doing already. <laughs> Everyone had heard of Saul. They had heard of him because he was such a zealous religious Jew. And people admired him, but they also feared him. And they knew he was zealous. It, it, it bore fruit in, in two main ways. This is what we're going to look at here. First, we see that uh, they, it bore fruit in the persecuting Saul, but it also bore fruit in the zealous Saul. So we're first going to look at the persecuting Saul, who hated Christians and hated Christianity. In verse 13 in Galatians 1, Paul says this, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and tried to destroy it. Paul's, uh, Paul's persecution of the church actually grew gradually. Uh, if you would, keep your finger there and, and flip your Bible. I believe the verses will be up here as well. But flip your Bible to Acts chapter 8, 1, around there. We're actually going to be going back and forth between these chapters. And the reason is, is because the book of Acts is a story of what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. It's a story of the church going out into all the nations. And it includes people coming to know Christ like Paul. And you see in the end of 7, 8, and 9, the story of Paul's conversion. And that's, that's tied in directly with what we're studying today. So if you can, keep a finger in each place and we'll flip back and forth between the two. But what we'll see is that Paul started out just by quietly approving of the persecutions of Christians. Uh, in verse, in, in Acts 7, 58, it says, Then they, being a mob of Jews, cast him, being Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And, they, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of his execution. You know, it talks about laying their garments at the feet of Saul. You may think, you know, what does this mean? Are they pledging allegiance? Are they saying Saul's our king now? Now that Jesus is dead, we're laying our garments there. Uh, when I looked through the commentaries, they basically just said Saul was the, uh, the coat man. <laughs> he just said, you know, it's really hard to stone people to death when you're wearing a coat. Why don't you just leave it here and I'll watch it for you. And so Paul was in the distance watching the coats, silently, quietly approving of this martyr of them killing this Christian who followed Jesus. But it goes further than that. Paul doesn't stay in this quiet approval of persecuting Christians. He goes on to persecute Christians himself in Jerusalem. So back there in Acts again, 
Acts 8.3, it says, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Paul even confesses later in the book of Acts, he says that I imprisoned and beat those who believed in Jesus. This is the religious authority of the time. This is someone that everyone looked up to because he was so extremely zealous for the religion of his fathers. And he said, I would beat the people who disagree with me. And finally, Saul was not content just getting the people out of Jerusalem. He wanted to exterminate them. And so he, said, he went to the Sanhedrin and he said, send me out so I can go persecute them someplace else. 8.2, it says, And there arose on the day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so the church was in Jerusalem, and they were being persecuted by Paul and by other folks, and as they were being persecuted, they started to scatter. But the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And so Saul was saying, you know, we, we've kicked the Christians out of here for the most part, but we need to exterminate them. I mean, they were, he's thinking genocide, all right? This is, this is Hitler for the Christians, all right? And Paul decides he wants to, to kill them. He put the Matt Christian? Yep. Okay. And so what we see is, um, let me read verse 9-1, chapter 9-1 of Acts, and, and then I'll flush this out a little bit. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so what we see here is um, Paul was in Saul, excuse me, I'll keep doing that. Saul was in Jerusalem, and which is sort of the epicenter for the Jewish religion. And, and he's persecuting the Christians. He's throwing them in jail, even murdering some. He's beating them. And so what happens is they start fleeing all over this area. Uh, and it's actually the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And the stoning of Stephen, which Paul approved of, sort of initiated this where the Christians just uh, went out over the whole area. And so Paul said, you know, I'm here in Jerusalem, and we've done a pretty good job getting the Christians out of here, but a lot of them have fleed up to Damascus. Can I go up there and tell the synagogue that I have permission to beat these Christians and throw them in jail? And so they write him a letter, and he goes on his way to Damascus. We'll pick up that story more later, because something really important happens on the road to Damascus. But they, they, they saw that Paul was a religious superstar because of the way that he persecuted the Christians, but also because he was so zealous for his faith. Verse 14, back in, in Galatians chapter 1. Sorry, I'm skipping around a lot today. Verse 14 says this, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father, of my father's, Paul was saying, I was the best of the best. I was the valedictorian of the Jews. I was top gun. Then you were here in the 80s, you know what that means. I was top gun, I was the best of the best. And what he was so good at was knowing the religion of his fathers, knowing the traditions that were passed down. And these were the reasons why Paul actually went to persecute the Christians, was because the religion of his fathers, which was not God's, 
said you need to go and you need to exterminate them because they are a threat. He goes on to talk about how proud he was of his religion. In Philippians 3, 4 through 7, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, which we know, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. And so he said, religiously, I was perfect. Near perfect, at least in the eyes of the people around me. They all looked up to me as a religious man. He also expands on this in Acts 26, 4 through 5, when he says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And so Paul says, I was religious. I was the best religious guy there was. None of you here could ever be as good at religion as Paul was. None of you could be. He was great at it. He was well known for it. He was a superstar for being religious in the Jewish religion. And what we see is that because of it, Saul is not indifferent towards Christians. He hates them. He wants to beat them, put them in jail, murder them. Because they were opposing everything he had worked for. When you're religious, you say, I have worked so hard to please God. He has to be happy with me because I've earned his favor. I've done all these things. I haven't done these things that I want to do. And so God must love me. And Paul's preaching this gospel that says, you know what? All those things that you tried so hard to do, it's not enough. <laughs> it's not enough. I don't care how many miles you ran. I don't care how many mountains you climbed. It's not enough. You're still a sinner. You still need Jesus. Oh, this just frustrated him. And so he went to persecute the Christians, stamped them out, do this genocide, because he wanted them gone. What we see is that religion conforms people by force, but the gospel transforms people by grace. The gospel conforms people by force. It conforms them by beating them into submission. This is who Saul was. This is what, who Hitler was, who did these things in the name of religion. The gospel, though, transforms people by renovating their hearts by the love of Jesus Christ. So Saul was a religious man who wanted to beat religion into people. But Paul, the new Saul, he proclaimed the gospel of grace and love. And it transformed hearts and radically changed the world. I'm going to give you a few illustrations here. We're actually probably only going to get to the first main point today. Um, sorry. Back in, back in uh, the 11th century, from 1095 to 1272, there was 177 years of the Christian church life in which they started uh, sending out these crusades. They were uh, religious, politically sanctioned military campaigns to extend the kingdom of God. And they said, we are going to beat these people into submission. 
we're going to make them Christians whether they want to be or not, right? I think we're a little bit wiser than that today, but this was their thought. We're going to make them Christians by force. It said over 150,000 men, at least 150,000 men, died beating people into submission. Here's the craziest part of this. This is where religion just really flares up and it's very ugly. The, uh, the church at that time, which is our history, to be honest with you, the church at that time said that if you would die in the military campaign, if you would die in, in combat, you would have an immediate remission of your sins. And so whatever you did in battle, if you raped, murdered, if you stole, doesn't matter. If you die for Jesus' church, if you die for our team, you're going straight to heaven. Do you see the problem with that? Who's that about? <laughs> Does it have anything to do with God at all? Anything? No, it doesn't. It's all about if you die in battle, you'll go straight to heaven. doesn't matter what you do. You'll go straight to heaven. Let me share with you another story. When Trisha was in, when we were in St. Louis and I was in seminary, because I didn't get ordained over the internet, uh, when I was in seminary in St. Louis, Trisha was teaching me. She was my sugar mama. She put me through school. And uh, she was a teacher at McKelvey Elementary School. And there were two women, two teachers in the school who none of the teachers liked. Uh, they were mean. They were arrogant. They were really judgmental. They were the most religious women in the whole church. They're most of the devoted women to their church. But people hated to be around them because they were always being judged, always being belittled, always being put down. You know, I always, I always felt sorry for the husbands <laughs> of those wives, just picturing them being at home, sitting in the lazy boy and saying, yes, mother, yes, mother, yes, mother. They're so religious that they put this pressure on everyone to be perfect like them. Final illustration, this, uh, this sermon series, you guys see this bulletin on the front, and this is very current. Uh, we have this for the whole series of the book of Galatians, it says freedom from religion. If you go on our webpage, you'll see the same thing, we'll be up there for the whole series. Uh, one, of my, one of my friends, Ryan, picked these bulletins up for me, and he showed it to one of his friends, his friend who goes to church weekly, is a very religious guy. And his friend just blew up at him. His friend said, what the heck is this dude? I, I wasn't there, but he was so upset that Ryan just had to leave the room. I got an email this week, and I'm going to read it to you word for word just so you understand that I'm not making this up. And it actually got worse, but I won't read you that part. Um, I got this email from an acquaintance in town who saw our website and uh, this freedom from religion, and he says this. He says, so I suppose whoever came up with this front page of your website, Freedom From Religion, probably thought it was very clever. As someone who has devoted his life to the defeat of the secular atheist, this kind of sounds like Paul, a little Saul, a little bit, who, who, uh, who devoted his life to the defeat of the secular atheist destroying this country, atheists who espouse this exact phrase to twist and corrupt our constitution and our founding biblical principles, I find this, bold letters, extremely offensive. And believe me, bold letters again, anyone who is involved in this fight as much as I am would agree. I know my friends in this field, 
then they would not even consider stepping into your church after reading this phrase. I'm not sure if that's a promise or a threat. <laughs> I hope it's a promise. They would take one look at it and see the evil that we fight. Here's the thing. is It's not, it's not bad that this guy disagrees with me. I, I don't mind that at all. What religion does is religion clubs people over the head. It says, I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm going to beat you with it. Some of you have been beaten down by religion. People have given you a constant guilt trip. They'll say, you know, you, you better shape up. You better be better. Look at you. You're a mess. You're horrible. You need to be more like me. You need to be more godly like me. You need to come to church like me, and then you'll be better. And so people use religion as a club to beat people down. And then you just feel guilty. You don't share what's really going on in your life because then they'll know that you're messed up. But they beat you down by religion. I just want to say to you very clearly, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that people who are probably my brothers and sisters in Christ have misunderstood the gospel and tried to beat you into submission. I know some of you don't even want to be around anyone that even smells like a Christian because people have beaten you into submission. Secondly, though, I think all of us have probably also used this club of religion to beat other people down. I know in parenting, this is really popular. It's like, Corbin, you better eat your peas. It would make God happy with you. Corbin, don't hit your brother. It's going to make God happy with you. There's no need for Jesus. It's all about what Corbin does or doesn't do that makes God pleased with him. And to be honest, we're all guilty to a certain extent. All of us. One way that we see um, us using how do I do this is oftentimes I will, I will offer advice from a distance, but I will never step into the messiness of this situation. And so somebody comes to me and they're saying, you know, I'm really struggling with alcohol, I'm really struggling with pornography, I'm really struggling with my husband, with my wife, and I pull up a proverb, and I throw it at them, and I said, I'll pray for you. Good luck. Let me tell you what to do. It can look really godly, but I'd never step into their mess. i never say, I love you and care for you enough to actually be a part of your life, to help you through this difficult season of life. Are there areas in your life where you just throw proverbs at people like Aaron's? But you're never willing to step in and help them where they need to see the grace and mercy and redemption of God. Like we said, religion conforms people and the gospel transforms people. John 12, 47 puts it this way. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. It's Jesus. Jesus said I didn't come to judge the world. And if Jesus didn't come to judge the world, but to save it, what's your role? Would your role be to judge? Probably not. <laughs> if Jesus being God did not come to judge a little bit to save him, your role is to step into the brokenness of people's lives and offer the redemption that's only found through Jesus Christ. Here's, here's my biggest challenge, and we'll wrap up with this. Could you possibly love religious, arrogant, 
jerks. Does the gospel free you to love even those people? When I got this email from this acquaintance, I, uh, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to get a bigger club and be in back. I wanted to pull out Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, Japanese, Chinese, any language I could just to beat this guy down and say, you are so wrong. What are you doing? Don't you know that Jesus was opposing the religious leaders? Don't you know that it was the religious leaders that put people to death? I just want to send this email back. Don't get involved. Tell them what's up. And go on with my life. And then my friend says, I can't do that, Dan. It's not the gospel. It's not how Jesus treated you. So this week, I'm going to have to call this person up and say, let's get together. Let's talk. See, I, I, can, I can love religious, arrogant jerks because Jesus loved me. That's who I was. And so we can love even those really difficult people in our lives. We will um, we'll pick up this sermon again next week, and we'll continue to flush this out. It's a wonderful rest of the passage. And I'm so glad that God made me preach this, even though I didn't want to. And so we'll come back and look at it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you confessing today that we have all, in our own lives, used the guilt of religion to try to make people into a certain image, to make them easier for us, God. And we have not stepped into their brokenness, stepped into their life and walk them through into the freedom that the gospel provides for the brokenness in their life, for the sin in their life, for the Lord. Forgive us, Jesus. May we be people who would even love religious, arrogant jerks, God. That is the hardest person for me to love. Would you help me love them, Lord? Help all of us to love them, Lord. And God, we just praise you that you would love us, that you would send your Son to die for us, for people who along with those first people who were with Jesus, nailed him to the cross, spit on him, cast insults upon him, Lord. God shamed him by our sin, Lord. Every time we sin, it's what we do. And yet you died for us. And we are so thankful, Lord. We praise you for being a God of grace and mercy. A God who created a true gospel, not a man-made one, one far better than any man could make up. In Jesus' name.